Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast, but only this bit is live on tape from Dublin and Belfast because what we're about to present is something live, literally live from Belfast. Literally live from Belfast. It's the best place to be live from Belfast. <laughs> yes. If you have to be alive anywhere, uh, Belfast is a good place. And uh, it is the welcome return of, I think we can officially call him friend of the show, Mark Lewison. Exciting. It is exciting, and it, it's one of the um, miracles of Nothing Is Real, is that uh, we are now known to Mark Lewison, and he's a very nice chap, and he's a very friendly chap, and he's, he's a friend to Beatles fans everywhere. He's very friendly, he's been very generous with his time, and mm-hmm. it really boggles the mind that he knows who we are <laughs> and has heard of this podcast and is prepared to come back a second time. Yes, and, and, and listens to the podcast occasionally, he tells us. <laughs> but anyway, Mark Lewison, everybody listening here, I'm assuming knows who Mark Lewison is. He is the Beatles biographer and historian beyond compare. Um, he has written his first volume. Everyone's asking him when he's going to write the second volume of the definitive Beatles biography all these years. And we're going to spend an hour asking him that question, except we're not. No. 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 And he very graciously, we first crossed paths with him back in 2019 in the before times when the podcast was very young and new. And he came on and gave us an awful lot of time, did a good interview, which I re-listened to when I was driving up to Belfast this time to talk to him. And uh, because it had been so long ago, a lot of it was kind of new to me again. But he's, it's a very interesting chat. If you haven't listened to that, go back to our two-hour chat with him in 2019. Because it certainly, I think from a inside baseball point of view, there was before Mark came on the podcast and then there was after Mark came on the podcast. Absolutely. That was really what I think kickstarted the upswing in people listening to the podcast. There's the Lewison yes. effect. The, exactly. There is a definite Lewison effect. So we're going to have the, the Lewison effect here again today. We, we met up with him in Belfast because he was bringing his Evolver 62 show to Belfast. And this is the most spread out tour with the fewest dates imaginable. He did a small run in London uh, last year. And the point of the show is to celebrate Uh, The Beatles in 1962 through 62 objects that tell a chronological story throughout the year. And he did a few shows in London, wasn't going to tour it, but then brought it to Belfast. Yes. And we we said, why did you bring it to Belfast? And he said, they asked me. (laughs) Yes. And it was an abridged show that he brought to Belfast. So instead of 62 objects, he did 26 objects 
because it's all got to make sense and all the rest. And he does have one more show coming, doesn't he? He's, he's bringing it to the US of A. That's right. He is bringing it to the weekend-long Fest for Beatles fans in Jersey City hmm. on the evening of Saturday, the 1st of yeah, April. So if everyone wants to go to the northeast of the US and track Mark down to see the next show uh, of, of Evolver 62, it's definitely uh, well worth it. This was recorded as part of the Cathedral Arts Festival in Belfast on the 25th of January in the Black Box, which is a very nice venue, uh, holds maybe 175, 180 people, sold out. Obviously, people were there to see Mark, not us. But Mark very generously uh, got in touch before the event and asked if we would like to join him on stage for the second half of the evening and to basically host the Q&A. Yeah, so what you're listening to now is the second half of the show. The first half he's done Evolver 62. So some of the questions are a bit of a follow-on from 62, and then we go off down to uh, avenues unknown. And I think the, the thing I find fascinating about Mark is, yes, of course you can pick his brains for, you know, Beatle lore and Beatle history and try and get his opinion and decision on things. But he himself is also interesting. How he is putting his body of work together, his archive together, how he is making this happen is a story in and of itself, which I'm really, uh, you know, there's almost a book about how he has made these books, but he should write the other books first. (laughs) He should definitely write the other books first, but I, I for one, would definitely read a book about his research and just the method he uses, the the anecdotes that won't make the book, but about the Beatles, but he had dinner with Alan Klein. He told us a brilliant Alan Klein story in the pub afterwards, and maybe someday we can get him to tell it in person, but we were very, very excited. But you're not going to hear that on this episode, because um, I've read the, the, the Nothing Is Real mail sack, and people are saying, enough Alan Klein. I'm sure your mail sack says more Alan Klein. It does say more Alan Klein, but the most <laughs> exciting thing to come out of the evening is that I have been in a pub having a drink with someone that has had dinner with Alan Klein. Never thought it would happen. I know, and I was there too. I- were you there too? I can't remember you being there. I was there too. I might, I might not have been noticed. Were you there too? I didn't notice. Anyway, um, look, without further ado, we shall go back to um, January 2023. Uh, this is us live in the black box in Belfast with the one and only Mr. Mark Lewison. Cue applause. Hello, everybody. Um, we're going to introduce ourselves. My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we host a podcast called Nothing Is Real, which unsurprisingly... Oh, hello. <laughs> Thank you. Um, which is the real reason you're here. No, no, no. Um, but thank you very much, for um, Mark, for having us today, because we're going to ask a couple of questions uh, that have come from the audience. Yes. And a couple of questions upon on reflection of what we've just seen. Anything else? No, these are, these are questions that have come from the audience. There, there are some questions that I've written that I would like to ask Mark as well, so if he doesn't, he doesn't mind. Okay. Um, but first of all, I mean, Jason and I had, had seen the Evolver presentation in London, and I think watching it again, I was saying this to Mark, there are things that I, I didn't remember. There is so much yeah. there that, uh, you know, you really need to see this presentation twice. So perhaps we'll finish the questions, if you could just <clears throat> run, 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 run through it. Yeah, okay. Um, run through it again. We'll get our sleeping bags. But one, one of the questions uh, that, that we got, and this, this came from 
a lot of people uh, through the Facebook page and on, on Twitter, but this, this particular person, John Parkin, said, uh, do you have plans to do another show focusing on a different year? <clears throat> yes, I think I do. Uh, when I came up with Evolver 62, I thought, well, Evolver being the stem of the title, I could do Evolver 63, 64, 65, and so on. When I did Evolver 62, when it was all done, I, I was a bit mindful of how long it had taken me to get it together. And I do have a book to write. <laughs> I actually, yeah. We, uh, we weren't going to mention the book. We weren't going to mention I mean, the volume two. I mean, the actual, what, you weren't going to mention it at all? <laughs> I think all these cards mention it. Volume I mean, yes. two, volume two, I mean, two. The, a, the actual reality is that uh, I got a very good publishing advance. One of the last great publishing advances before the 2008 financial collapse, followed by everything going digital. And those kind of advances just don't exist in book publishing anymore. Um, it was a lot of money, but it was almost 20 years ago and it's gone. It evaporated, it just does, you spend it once, but I haven't been profligate, but it's just gone. And um, I thought the project, the entire three volumes would take 12 years. And here I am, um, what am I, now been doing it for 19 years and I've done one, <clears throat> which is slightly worrying considering that I'm in my 60s. Um, so I need to finance what I do, I, you know, I'm, I'm very, focused writer and researcher, but living is expensive and I have to do trips to do research and so on. So I could go crowdfunding, but it's not, I'm just a kind of, I just feel I'm the wrong age for crowdfunding. I know that is nonsense. I know that's just my own prejudice, but I wasn't brought up with crowdfunding. I was brought up with giving people something and then giving you their money and you've given them a good night out and, and you've got their money. And it seems like a fair trade to me. So I did a show in 2019 called Hornsey Road, mm -hmm. which was about the anniversary of Abbey Road. And then I did this Evolver show and I think I will carry on, but I must find a way of doing it so that it takes less time to prepare. Okay. You have a White Album show, don't you, in reserve that you gave as a lecture? Yeah, in fact, that was the start of it all. I was commissioned to do the keynote speech at a White Album symposium at a university in um, New Jersey. And I put that together and I sh showed it to a guy from Phil McIntyre Entertainment. And he said, you could tour this in theaters. Really? So yeah, we could put you on, we could do a tour. But the White Album anniversary was kind of passing and uh, it wouldn't have worked in the following year quite so well. So I said, well, I could anticipate Abbey Road then, be on the anniversary and not too late. And that's how Hornsey Road happened. So I will do an Evolver 63, and I think this very week I've actually hit upon how to do it in a way that won't take me very long. 63 items, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, the, the, true, the, the full show of this 62 items, it's, um, it's about two and a half hours to present, but it took two and a half months to put together, and I really can't afford to keep doing that in terms of my own target for writing the book. So my challenge to myself is find a way of doing a really good show for people that's got a lot of good stuff in it but doesn't take very long to assemble and I think this week I've cracked it good and um, we, we can we'll see you back in Belfast then. I hope so I love coming here <laughs> I'm very happy to be here thank you <laughs>
Well, we have, we have lots of 1962 related questions, as, as you might imagine, so that might be a good place okay. uh, to start. Um, this is a, a question from someone in the room, uh, David Agnew. Uh, and David says, uh, how likely is an Apple release of the Star Club tapes, uh, particularly with a Peter Jackson AI upgrade? Yes. Um, does everybody in the room know about Peter Jackson's AI work? Yes. Does anybody not know? That's another way of saying it. No? Okay, so you all know. Um, it's a great it's a great hope that he does do that. Um, I, I have no say over, I mean, I, not only do I have no say over what Apple does, but I also don't know what they're planning. Mm. So for all I know, they might be planning that very thing right now. He could even be working on it right now, and I don't know. But I hope he does it. I really, really hope he does it. If not him, then somebody else. That AI technology is yeah. not exclusive to Peter. And those tapes kind of, I wouldn't say they're not technically publicly public domain. They don't, there is actually... I was part of the court case in which, in 1998, in which Apple finally gained ownership of tapes that had had a kind of grey ownership ever since they were made in 1962. And I gave evidence for them that helped them secure ownership in the court. And, um, but apart from that technicality, the tapes are just kind of, in the lowercase sense, they're public domain. They've been around 50 years nearly. And they've been released so many times, including on spurious labels. And I, if ever a, a set of Beatles tapes was ripe for audio improvement, it would be those because it was just all a mono mush. And if there is some way of separating out and then rebalancing the mix and getting it sharper and better balance. John's guitar, for example, is I think his the microphone for the tape recorder was just very near his amplifier. Yeah. So his guitar is very loud and very clear throughout that whole tape, which I love because it's a rare opportunity to hear John's rhythm guitar playing up front, but it's not a good balance. Yeah. If you, you know, a proper producer would want balance. Well, that was Jason and I, we went to a presentation at Studio Two in Abbey Road yeah. and they played the demixed version of uh, She Loves You. Yes. And I think, which is only available as the mono uh, uh, mix, and yes. then they had sort of pulled things out. And I think we both looked at each other and we thought, the start Club tapes. This, yes. is, this is the logical next yes. step. And uh, for me, the sort of, uh, you know, revolver and the, I would rather they worked on the Star Club tapes right. than went back um, to, sort of to the studio albums, I think. Yeah, I could I could give someone a very long shopping list actually of, of stuff. It's it is quite incredible what technology is allowing now, and it isn't just um, Peter Jackson who's doing it. There are people all over the world, hobbyists who have this this software now and are making. I've heard the BBC, the Beatles BBC tapes, which were only recorded in mono, are now stereo. You've now got them with vocals extracted, or just the backing tracks, or just the bass on its own, or just the drums on their own. It's, in, it's, it's just open. Now it's fair game. The Beatles recordings and everybody else's recordings are fair game for enthusiasts who have the software. And it's very exciting to hear this stuff. Very exciting. Recordings that were forever mono are now, so, are now no, no longer mono. So do you approve mm. in principle? Yeah, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that the attitude in the 70s and 80s, and I was part of the EMI team that did a lot of the releases, was we were intent on being as faithful as possible to the originals, because after all, that's what the Beatles wanted. They wanted it to sound like that. And we can't deviate from that because it 
means deviating from their wishes. That was that seemed right at the time, but as years have gone by, it no longer seems right, and I'm now up for everything. <laughs> Anything, because all these things will help us to help expose the the musicality, the original thinking that went into all these ideas, these songs, these recordings, and it's like peeling back the, the, the petals of a flower now and we can just see all the beautiful parts inside. And it never detracts from the work from my point of view. It only adds to our appreciation. So I'm up for all of that because the Beatles always come out of it smiling. I'm convinced. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah they do. Um, no, you're true. And it's also the Beatles also reflected the technology. A lot of this work is being done for the technology as to how people listen to music these days, whether it's something very complex like Atmos or something very simple like a smart speaker. So hmm. they're just the same as they always did, moving with the times yes. and the technological reproduction of their records. Really. And in, in particular with the recordings at EMI, as the Revolver box set demonstrates and all the others as well, they were so well recorded. Yes. The EMI staff had very, very good training. Uh, other bands recording in other studios, their work wouldn't stand up to that kind of audio scrutiny. But the Beatles EMI recordings were superb. Yeah. And and they're, they're robust enough to take whatever software it does to them and still sound good. Absolutely. A couple of other questions looking at the 1962 presentation again. Another couple of things came to mind. The Jeff Emmerich tape that he has squirreled away for all these years. Yes. It seems almost like an unbelievable story. This really important tape that's gone missing. It's not like somebody who was tangentially involved in the story forgot it was in the attic. This is a somebody right at the center who was keeping it secret. Um, is the motivations purely money or is there a bigger story at play here? I don't know because I'm not actually privy to it. <clears throat> I know that um, I was approached by an attorney for um, the Emmerich family, but I didn't get involved. It wasn't that I was, didn't want to get involved, they just didn't involve me, but we did have a conversation. Um, it's remarkable because I, I did know Jeff quite well from I first met him in 87 and I knew him until he died. And we, we, we weren't great pals, but we met on many occasions. We worked together and he never said that he had this tape. And um, we had use of it in the anthology. We could have really put, put it to good use. He kept Sturm. Mm. Um, as I said in the show, I think he probably knew that it would be confiscated. But initially, I think the, re the reaction would have been how fantastic that you've got this. Yeah. And there would have been some exgratia payment to him um, for keeping the tape that should have been thrown away. Now it seems more embittered than that. And I'm concerned that whoever gets it, whether it's the Emmerich family who get to keep it or Universal who get to take possession of it, that they'll just lock it away. And I very much hope that we will get to hear it. It is amazing that it's what four years before he works with the Beatles, he's still very much a junior guy on the lab, that he keeps that particular tape. It's four years before he engineered the Beatles, but he was tape operator on right. earlier sessions. It wasn't he a tape operator on, I'm trying to remember my own book, was it <laughs> She Loves You or one of those sessions? Quite early on, he was a tape op. Mm. So he was around the Beatles almost as soon as he left school, but he didn't graduate to becoming an engineer until Revolver. But it was because he was a boy yeah. that he got charged with the job of going over the road and throw all those tapes into that, 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 that their skip. <laughs> you know, that was it, basically. Um, you know, a more senior person wouldn't have been given that job. Yeah. But the Beatles had broken through by then, and he just thought, throw away the Beatles tape. I'm not sure I should. 
But if I leave it to the powers of the bee, it will get jumped. So I'll just take it home. And he took it home and kept it there. Hopefully we do get to, to hear it. Yeah. The, the other thing I was thinking of is the whole, you know, Pete Best leaving the band is obviously a pivotal change. Yes. And it is, it's always been fascinating to me that it's from that moment onwards that we start to actually get them recorded on tape and on video and all the rest. That, that, that there's a huge, yeah. um, you know, physical, the physical presence of Ringo is just how we know them and it's how it's recorded. But the thing I was struck by again is that letter from George Martin seems to have been the, 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 the pull of the trigger on should we get rid of Pete or not? Am I reading that right? Uh, not quite. I okay. think I think the desire to. I mean, John. They they very rarely spoke about Pete, and as I mentioned in my Evolver show, I think they were doing Pete a kindness in that they didn't really bring up the subject. They moved on. They weren't the looking back type anyway, so they just moved on, and they had plenty to go forward with. Um, and the, the the motor through an awful lot of nineteen sixty two is Brian and the work of Brian. Mm. Is there? Do you think there's a moment where they kind of realized what Brian was doing for them, that perhaps the Bests or Alan Williams hadn't really been, you know, working in the same way for them? Is there a, a bit where the penny drops or is it just, it just starts with Brian and keeps going, really? So they could see right from the start. I mean, he went down to London to try and get them a, re, a recording audition, the one with Decca, um, days after he first told them that he was going to try and do something for them. He had no contract. He took the day off. He went down at his own expense. He was out of pocket for their management for the first year. He just invested in what he believed. So, yes, they could see that. End of part one. Intermission. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. End of intermission. Part two. If you were in a group in another city, you typically would be in the shadows style, mm -hmm. not what the Beatles were doing. But also there wasn't enough labor, there wasn't enough work for you as a band to play every night <clears throat> because your gigs would just be at the weekends, yeah. weddings and parties and things, Friday and Saturday, maybe Sunday. And because there weren't the venues, so the, the guys in those groups had to have day jobs. Yeah. Whereas in Liverpool, there were so many venues that a few of the bands, Beatles being number one, could go professional. So they would play the cavern at lunchtime. They didn't have to go back to work afterwards. They would just go in the record shops or in the cafes or drinking clubs or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that was a whole new thing that, that gave them much greater opportunities to expose themselves to other music. They could hang out in record shops for hours and did in Brian's shop. Very handy for the Beatles to have a manager who ran a record shop. 
not uh, something that they took lightly at the time. I mean, they were really glad to have, Brian gave them a discount on records and they were big record fans. So it worked out for them in every way. And one more thing about Brian. People talk about Brian as the manager, which is true. But what isn't ever said is that Brian always brought his office to the party. So if Brian was your manager, you would also have the use of Brian's secretary, Brian's PA, Brian's uh, general assistant or whatever, Brian's accounts department. You would have a whole team of people behind you. And when the Beatles come down to London, there's about how many people in NEMS? About 25 people working in NEMS all focused on keeping, making the Beatles great and keeping them there and processing their admin in every efficient way imaginable. So it wasn't just the one man. They, you had all of Brian's staff on your team. And that was a big part of what Brian bought. He brought to his artists a whole team of people. You'd quite, oops. <laughs> You had questions about Artwood and Beechwood, wasn't, yeah, you... Yes, I, 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 yeah. Uh, before reading Tune In, I had never heard the name Sid Coleman and uh, Kim Bennett, and uh, who, who were the, ran the publishing company, the EMI offshoot, and we all know that uh, Dick James comes in and they end up, the publishing goes to uh, uh, Northern Songs. Could I ask you just to give me a little bit of the follow-up story of Sid Coleman and Kim Bennett. I know Sid Coleman sadly dies in the mid-60s, but... Yes. Sid Coleman had a heart attack in about 1965, so that's the end of Sid. Uh, but Kim Bennett, who was his assistant, he was the one who really tried to get the Beatles signed to a recording contract. He is very much the unknown hero in the Beatles story, so unknown that they don't know about him. And they were fed a line about how they were signed by George Martin that they always, they saw no reason to, to disbelieve and therefore hold it true to this day, but it's not right. Um, and it was when, and this isn't quite answering your question, but I'll get there. When I first got access, when I wrote my book on the Beatles recording sessions, I had access to all the tape logs that Abbey Road, Abbey Road had kept. So for every recording session, there was a piece of paper say when it started, when it finished, who engineered it, what takes were done and so on. And I said to the person at Abbey Road who was helping me, are there any other papers within EMI that might have recording information? And she said, no, this is it. So I wrote the book on that basis. And then about three years later, 1991, um, I can't even remember now anymore how it happened, but I got access to another archive within EMI that was just like the Beatles' relationship with the company. It wasn't just about the recording, it was the whole relationship, contractual and more, and a lot of recording information, which I wish I had known. Um, and I was really annoyed about that because I hadn't seen everything when I wrote the book and it wasn't my fault. But um, along the, um, among these papers were all these papers about how they came to be signed to EMI with all the dates, the requisitions, I showed some of them on the screen. And they all predate when the Beatles first went to Abbey Road. And I was working with George Martin at that time on a TV program called The Making of Sergeant Pepper. And we were in a Soho cutting room uh, overseeing the edit of the TV program. And I, George, it was the end of the afternoon. I said to George, before you go, can I show you something? Yes, what is it? <clears throat> and I got out this folder of papers and I spread them all out on top of the edit suite uh, panel. 
And I just said to him, this is how the Beatles came to be signed. These documents have got your signature on it. They go back to 1962, but they tell a different story to the one you've always told. <clears throat> Can you explain it? Um, which was, it could have been a bit awkward for him, but he appeared to genuinely not have an explanation for it. But I was unhappy and I was writing my book, The Complete Beatles Chronicle, and I knew that these pieces of paper were true and yet they didn't add up to the story that had been told. And I was always uncomfortable with that. And when I was coming to write this book, Tune In, I thought I need to know the answer now. And I found the man who had the key to the answer, which was this man, Kim Bennett. Kim Bennett was his professional name. A male Kim was a bit confusing. He was always being addressed in letters as Miss Kim Bennett. His real name was Thomas Whippy. Tom Whippy. <laughs> Mr. Whippy, he was. He did damn good ice cream. And um, I, got, I approached him and he was so happy that I got in touch with him because he knew the true story of how the Beatles came to be signed to EMI and he knew that it was his efforts that had made the difference and without him, it wouldn't have happened. The Beatles possibly may never have happened without Kim Bennett. And he had been trying to tell people for years and people didn't want to know. It was one of those, you know, he'd be in a pub somewhere and say, you know, you know the Beatles, yeah? Well, I was responsible for them getting, oh yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> How did that happen then? And no one was really interested. And he was a very frustrated man because no one had ever paid him the attention that he felt was his, was his due. And I realized how important he was. And I, um, he didn't want me to go to his place. I think he was living in quite humble circumstances in Shropshire. He said, I'll come to you. So um, I put him up in a local hotel and he came to my house over two days. I took him out for dinner. He was a very particular man, very insistent about things, wasn't it? prodding his finger a lot, but he was very pleased that I, would, I was listening and I had the research backup of paperwork and things that, to show him and he'd go, that's it, that's the piece of paper, that kind of thing. And he was vindicated. Yeah. And um, very soon afterwards, he died. I know that because I wrote him a letter um, in about, about a year after he came to see him, I wrote him a letter saying, I'm working on the book and, uh, I found this piece of paper and such and such and such. A, how are you doing? Nice to have met you. And it came back as no longer at this address. And then I did some research locally and he had died. And if I hadn't have got to him when I did, we wouldn't know him. And we would always have that bizarre gap of how they got signed by someone who had never met them. Mm -hmm. So Kim Bennett, um, George Martin sidelined Ardmore and Beechwood. He signed the Beatles because Ardmore and Beechwood forced the issue, but he was unhappy about that. And once the Beatles became successful, he told Brian Epstein that Ardmore and Beechwood had been useless, hadn't done anything to plug and promote Love Me Do, and why don't you go to a publisher who's gonna work hard for your songs instead? Which was very tough on Kim Bennett, who had worked incredibly hard. I mean, I think that's what comes out in the book, yeah. that Bennett really did you know, go above and beyond. Oh, he was a very dogged man. And um, the, the kind of personality that got up people's noses was worked in the Beatles' favor in this instance because he would never say no. He would never take no for an answer, let me put it that way. Well, was, was George Martin's 
decision to do that? Was that motivated by the fact that he felt he had been forced yes. to do it? It was that rather than a sort yes. of personal thing. Because, because you, you, I mean, you do make the point in the book that George Martin did not benefit financially through the publishing deal, or that he, you know, that would that might have been a possibility, but he didn't. He didn't do that with Northern Song. Yeah. He, he was not happy with the, the Beatles. He was very happy with the Beatles. He was very, he, he came on board very quickly, mm. having been forced to sign them. He recognized almost immediately what interesting, no, absolutely immediately. He recognized what charisma they had, what personalities they were. If they could get the right song, he didn't think they could write the right song yet, but if he could give them the right song, which was how do you do it, they could be successful. Mm. And when Love Me Do was a hit, it was a great surprise to George because he didn't even want to put it out. And it was Kim Bennett who forced it out because they had the publishing on it. And, um, and George Martin then sidelined them. And two things then happened. First of all, Kim Bennett seethed for years. Yeah, I think he went to South Africa. He dropped out of London. So yeah. he was kind of off the scene. Um, but when he did tell people the story, no one would believe it. Um, and secondly, by George Martin pushing Brian Epstein towards Dick James, Dick James ended up with the Beatles Music Publishing, the EMI company at Ardmore and Beechwood lost out. As the Beatles became more and more successful, EMI came to realize that though they had the Beatles for records, they also had had their publishing and lost, lost it, it through an employee taking them to another company. And George Martin, at the end of 1963, he writes in his autobiography how miffed he was that he didn't get a Christmas bonus. But his Christmas bonus was he was allowed to keep his job <laughs> because he was hauled in over the carpet by Sir Joseph Lockwood in December 1963 and read the Riot Act. And if the Beatles hadn't been so successful, he would have, they would have fired him because he had lost the company a fortune. When you look at it that way, that's extraordinary. Yes. Yeah, really is. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm conscious, I'm keeping an eye on the clock, so we yes. might go beyond 1962. I don't do short answers, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 this is fascinating. But um, we talked before about in 2019, you very kindly came on our, our podcast, and the big kind of Beatle event since then has been Peter Jackson's Get Back. Yes. And kind of just wanted to get your thoughts on that in some ways, because first of all, it was fascinating to see the Beatles kind of enter the public consciousness again in a big way with something that was new and for it to be so critically acclaimed and, and successful. Um, and, and we were told at the start of this process that, oh, and you're going to get Let It Be as well, and Let It Be has kind of disappeared into the background. So do you think that the, the Peter Jackson Get Back project has been an overcorrection or has it been a, a proper realignment of what actually happened at the time? Because you know yourself as a historian, you know, what is the truth, you know, and, and how do you get to that point? In my own work, I, I look for all the pieces of that I could possibly find. And then I look at what the story is telling me is. And then I write that story without fear or favor. I just write what I can see from my research, from my evidence in front of me is the story. There is still an editorial decision constantly, though, which is the way you write it and the bits you choose to use or leave out. I tend to include it all and therefore it's plain and clear. But when you're shaping any creative project, the pieces you use or choose not to use can shape, will shape the, the image or impression on the recipient. 
in this case, the viewer, did Peter Jackson give a completely true story of what happened in that month? I think probably the word completely can't quite be applied, but I would give him the greatest congratulation on being overwhelmingly close to truth. I do think there probably were one or two editorial decisions that he took that may have changed people's minds on things. It's very little Yoko in, in, in that film, which has led to her getting kind of like a revised press in the past year and a half since Get Back was unveiled, um, which I think was overdue. And I'm perfectly happy for it to be a little bit more balanced than it used to be, which was horrible and wrong. Um, but at the same time, having heard all the tapes of that month, there is more Yoko. And there were things that he could have used but didn't that might have made people think less well of her. Um, there's the conversation in the film when they're all standing around, I think it's a piano, uh, and they're talking about, are they going to go to um, Libya or are they going to take a boat there? And is, is the, are there going to be fans on the boat? That great conversation where they're discussing what the very nature of what they've already started should have had before they began, but they haven't and now they're having it and it's on film and it's fantastic to see it. But if you hear the audio of that, Yoko contributes quite a bit in a way that had people seen it, they might have thought, oh, they might have done. Yeah. And he made a decision, possibly for other reasons as well. Maybe the film was flawed, I don't know, but he just chose to leave that out. And I don't really mind that because I'm not unhappy about Yoko getting a better press. I think it was horrible the way she was being depicted. But on the other hand, he skewed the picture there slightly because she was more vocal than that. She did come up with ideas at that little session that she had a right to come up with. I mean, it wasn't just the four of them who were entitled to come up with opinions. The Beatles make it very plain that anyone around them can say things. They were incredibly unstarry in that way. Mm. You know, if Mal Evans has got an idea, Mal says it. You know, no, at, no, at no point through the years has he been told you can shut up, it's, you know, I don't pay you to have an opinion. They were always open. So Yoko is open too, but Peter didn't use that. And that was his prerogative, but um, it's slight altering of the history, perhaps, very slight. There's a bit when George walks out where there's an implication, I can't remember the exact words, but it's something about the orchestrations or the parts or something like that. And it, 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 the, the way it's put across is like George is leaving the band and he's taking something with him. What he's really talking about is the recording session. He's got booked for that evening, um, which is to orchestrate uh, a great song called The King of Fu. Oh, yes. Classic. The King of Fu was all about the fucking. Um, it's was, funny for one listen, maybe. Yes, yes. Uh, and George was, um, this was a record that George had brought in as a finished master, but he was adding an orchestra to it that night. And that's what he's really talking about there. But you would never know that from watching the film. So um, there's a little bit of it, but I, I couldn't criticize Get Back. Uh, it's just a, a tremendous gift to anyone who not only is interested in the Beatles, but anyone who's fascinated by the creative process, it's just a brilliant, brilliant thing to see the Beatles close up like that, creating. Yep. 
I mean, obviously, everyone focuses in on certain moments, like Paul pulling Get Back out of the air. And, and you know, you were talking earlier on about Ringo and eye contact. Yeah. In that section of the film, Ringo is really making eye contact yes. once he realizes yes. what's happening. And of course, that's how songs are written. People yeah. are like amazed. Oh, you know, so, yeah, but it, it is lovely to actually get a bit of footage as special as yeah. that. Um, I heard the podcast you did about Alan Klein and I congratulate you on very fine work for sure. In the Get Back film, I was very pleased that Peter Jackson chose the little bit of Ringo saying he's a con man who's on our side for once, yeah. because it made us realize that they weren't blind to what this man was. They actually welcomed what he was gonna be doing for them as they thought it would be. But the second thing is that when Klein's name is mentioned in a session, in Peter Jackson's Get Back, you see Paul looking very serious and kind of, oh my God, look on his face. I think that's been edited in. Mm. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's edited in. I don't care for that. I don't uh, care for that at all. Yes, and, and one of the big problems I think of Beatle history is that we, we know it all quite with a huge familiarity. Yeah. So when you're watching something like Get Back Evolved Day by Day, well, it was just a meeting with Alan Klein. Nobody knew on, what was it, January the 27th, no. what was about to unfold. And I think Peter Jackson kind of gives you a little bit of that kind of feeling that it was just another meeting, you know, like it's ominous because we kind of know some of the things that happen. Afterwards. Yes. But I think that was the gift maybe of Get Back is that you can really see it's kind of amazing that they never planned anything, that they didn't know what the one week was going to be like following another week. <laughs> yes. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah. That the most that, famous that had the always been existed. their mantra. Something yeah. will turn up, something will happen. And but they had been looking for a, a Mr. X, as they were calling him. Mm. They didn't quite know who it was going to be but someone who was going to come in and take control of their contracts and, and Apple, which was uh, rapidly getting out of control uh, of their own making. And from a behind the scenes point of view, uh, did you know, I mean, when Peter Jackson was putting the movie out, we were promised a six hour movie and we got like an eight hour cut. And yeah. he was saying very publicly, I want to put out more. I want to put out as much as possible. There's so much more there. I'm worried they're going to lock the vault for another 50 years. And that's kind of a, a very odd thing to go public with, I, I, I thought. From a behind-the-scenes point of view, did that ring any bells with you, or did you have any thoughts of, oh, Peter's trying to... If you're trying to get the Beatles to sign off on something, and he was trying to get something out that was bigger than what he had signed up for. Yeah, I'm really not a part of it at all, and I don't know the nature of the contracts that have been signed. I'm surprised that... He, he's, he, I'm glad that Peter has been coming out publicly and saying, I want to put more out and I'm being stopped. I think that's very good um, because it lets us all know that he wants it and, and that there's an obstacle to it happening. I, I haven't seen the contracts, but the obstacle appears to be Disney Plus, mm. who having countenance nearly eight hours of television for, are for some reason saying no more with the figures that that the viewing figures and the subscription figures that were increased from Get Back. I'm very surprised they don't want any more. But I'm also surprised, I'd be very surprised if Apple Corps, the Beatles company, have signed away what can be done to that film for all time. There might be a, a term, a, yeah. a fixed mm. period of years, what Disney Plus have a say, but ultimately, surely the copyright belongs to Apple and they will use it. Yeah, well, certainly when it was announced in January 2019, Disney were nowhere on the horizon and it was an Apple project. So you would yeah. hope that that's the case. That yeah, I mean, I've, I haven't seen that one, but I have seen a lot of contracts where producers assign 
or give the right to a broadcaster to use it for X number of years. It's never forever. And finally, do you think Let It Be can get a fair viewing now, the actual original movie? Because again, that's was promised and it's disappeared. Yeah, it was, it was mentioned. Um, I, I, I don't know why it hasn't come out. I, I believe that it has been improved, corrected and made to look better. Mm. The same editorial content, but using the higher quality picture and sound. Um, I think it will, having spent money on putting it together, I'm sure they will use it at some point. There might be a contractual reason why it hasn't happened, I don't know, but I'm sure it will happen at some point. Yeah. In, in the context of Get Back, we know that Let It Be, the, the original Let It Be film, went through various iterations mm. with people saying, you know, can we have a little bit more of me and a little bit less of that and, and, and what have you. you. You mentioned that scene where Paul is looking very downcast and Klein is mentioned. Did you get a sense that the editorial input was Jackson's or that here we go again, you know, Paul is looking at a cut, Ringo is looking at a cut, the Lennon estate, the Harrison estate, that they all, it, it's, it's directing by committee to an extent? No, I don't think so. And, and not from what Peter said in interviews and things. It is, they are understandably so quite controlling of what goes out in their image. Um, but with Peter Jackson, uh, maybe because it was him or perhaps because it was something that went very close to the wire. I think I heard an interview in which he said he was still editing it only like a week before it, it was broadcast. Yes. I think on that basis, it, they may not have had the chance to see it before we did, which is extraordinary. Um, and I knew that when I was watching it and um, Ivan Vaughan, Ivan Vaughan was the guy who he was a friend of John's, uh, a neighbor of John's, and he was a friend of Paul's from school. It was Ivan who brought Lennon and McCartney together. Without Ivan, John and Paul wouldn't have met, or at least wouldn't have had that relationship. And um, Ivan turns up in, the, in Savile Row in January 69, and he's in Get Back. And it came up as um, Gene Marne, with a caption of Gene Marne, who was an Irishman who designed the Apple label for the, for the Apple Records. And I'm watching it and going, oh my God, they've put Gene Marne's name on Ivan's picture. And that confirmed for me that Paul couldn't have seen it. Because if he'd seen it, he would have said, hang on a minute, that's not yeah. Gene, that's Ivan. So that meant to me, Paul hadn't seen this yet. And I was really pleased about that. Yeah. Really <laughs> pleased to see a mistake. Because it, it showed me that it was less, um, what's the word, authorized mm -hmm. than, you know, it wasn't quite as closely managed as things usually are. Yeah. It was a bit more freeform than that. I was very pleased about that. Paul seemed to show people a 40 minute cut in his house up in the Hamptons. So I think that might be all he has seen. There's, a, there's yeah. an article that, this is what he showed to people and he was just delighted. And there's, yes. So there's this kind of putting two and two together that maybe having seen that, he was happy to let him loose, yeah. so to speak. It got corrected for the DVD, actually, or, or Blu-ray. And it's now, um, it now says Ivan Vaughan, John's friend. And I'm, that's not right either, because he's John and his friend and he's Paul's friend. So very strange. We did get some uh, questions about Get Back from the audience. So this is from uh, Chris Dolan. Chris Dolan, um, and I like this question a lot. It says, if John and or George were alive, would Get Back, the film, have seen the light of day? Well, impossible to say, isn't it? I, 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 I'm not very good on what ifs because, I mean, how can we know? Um, 
John, I mean, extraordinary to think how long John Lennon's been dead. He's been dead for 42 years now. He missed seeing how long the Beatles would last. He missed this extraordinary resurgence of interest that's happened for all of the 21st century and the latter part of the 20th. I mean, the Beatles were always big in John Lennon's life and he was always had fans outside as we know, but the Beatles have been bigger since he died almost than they were certainly in the 70s. And um, he never got to see any of that. I don't know what his take would have been. I do know that George in his lifetime always hated the Let It Be film mm. and anything to do with that project. And when, um, right through the anthology period, he was very down on Let It Be the whole time. And whenever Neil Aspinall of Apple was trying to get something going with Let It Be, George would always say no, because it was too painful or he decided, he convinced himself it was worse than it was. Yeah. I mean, when I listened to all the tapes and as we see and get back, it was really, it was quite a happy month really. Yeah. Um, but he had convinced himself it was the worst period ever and just didn't want anything to do with it. And George very seldom changed his mind on things. He was one of those guys who once he decided something, that was it. So uh, it's hard to imagine how he would have allowed Get Back to flower in the way that it has, but maybe with the passage of time, mm. it might've happened. Yeah. Maybe. I do like, you, you mentioned the Beatles are bigger than they ever were. I, I always like the fact that when the Beatles split in 1970, the population of the world was 3 billion and now the population of the world is 8 billion. And they are still massive. That even through with, with more noise out there and more people out there, there's still a, a you know so much interest in them. For for people that know the podcast, this is a very Jason. Uh, <laughs> that's my kind of <laughs> lateral thing. So right. you've Jason's got potentially a lot more listeners than they ever had at the time. That's exactly where I was going to. I'm, I'm wondering. I hate to be the fun police because I am keeping an eye on the clock. Should we barrel through some quick fire? Well, this, cards? Is, this is this is another. Uh, question. Uh, this is uh, from the Facebook page, I think, uh, from Damien McGuire. And he says, in January 1969, George returned to the band. He was sitting on dozens of great songs. He yeah. was ideally placed to push hard for a better place in the band, a bigger share. But he seemed to sort of back off from that. Uh, had he already earmarked all of these for solo projects? I know he talks about doing a solo album, but... Yes. Um, it's, it's the same day, I think, that John tells them he's seen met Alan Klein the night before. Mm -hmm. George says, I've got all these songs. I think I should do my own album. Yeah. And John and Yoko both say, great, great, you should do it. Um, but he doesn't, at least not at that point. But he, nor does he bring them forward very much. And even on the Abbey Road album, by which time George had even more songs, yeah. he only puts forward two. They both get done. Uh, Old Brown Shoe is part of those sessions as well, so three. But no, he's not putting many forward, is he? Um, and that can only have been his decision because I, there, there, there's no evidence of him saying, I've got this one and then going, no, let's not do that. Mm. So I think he was just biding his time. Yeah. Um, all things must pass and all that, which was already around. Yeah. But you know, the time will come, I think is probably what he thought. Mm. Uh, the card on the top of my pal says where in County Down was John's family from and any other connections with Northern Ireland but there's a radio show about that Stephen there is there is there is called Give the Beatles Back to the Irish it's on BBC Sounds and it's hosted by so two we, we, we'll not good looking that men. question. it's very good yeah. <laughs> I mean I, when I was doing my book I, I was intent on doing the genealogy of all of them and um, John, Paul and George all go back to Ireland um, but I kind of stopped when I got to Ireland. I mean, I, 
I, I have a general readership and there's a, you, have to, you can't test their patience too much. So I go back a certain way, a few generations, but I think, I don't know if anybody has actually done it, but there is scope for Irish genealogists to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and go back through as far as records go. And, you know, church records could go back a very long way. So yeah. it might be worth somebody picking There's a project up. if anybody... Yeah. The nothing is real in intern order. can do that. Yeah. You might well find that John's great, 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 great grandfather knew Paul's great, 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 great. I mean, these <laughs> things, there will be that connection because in the Beatles story, things always do connect. It's, it's Every, everyone in Ireland is related to everybody else. <laughs> it's all connected. Um, Bob, just random questions now. This is uh, John Malloy asks about the new or the upcoming Mal Evans uh, sort of biography, the diaries that Ken Womack is working yes, on. Yes. Um, do you think there is a lot that we will find out there, new information? Yes. Yes. Mal Evans, the Beatles' assistant roadie or road manager, I suppose, when Neil Aspinall became more than road manager, Mal became the, the, the roadie. We see him in Get Back. He's got great friendship with them. They is mutually respectful and he's an employee, but they treat him very well. Not necessarily financially, but they treat him well in making him welcome and happy to uh, have him contribute. Um, Earlier, he had been the guy in the van. They didn't always see mm -hmm. Mal in the touring days because Mal would be going from venue to venue with the gear and they were somewhere else. But nonetheless, he seems to... Well, he kept a diary. I, I understand that Neil Aspinall kept a diary as well, though I don't know when his began. Um, but they, they exist, apparently. But Mal's diaries, I first saw them in the early 90s and I was absolutely agog. They weren't journals, so there aren't many days when he's reflecting on what happened this day. They tend to be more of places and times mm. and that kind of thing. And they don't always relate to the Beatles. They relate to him as their roadie, got to pick up a guitar string, got to do this and that. But along the way, there are Beatles movements charted in these diaries. Um, and I will learn a lot from, from seeing them. I know I will, because I've seen the diaries. I never had the opportunity to make notes. And now I believe we're going to get them all. Yeah. I mean, I, I read some of the, in the recent George Harrison, Eric Clapton biography where Mal's notes on the studio logs from All Things Must Pass, where he's literally checking people in and out. Yes. You know, Peter Frampton arrived, Eric Clapton was here, he has to be paid this. And it, it's, yes. it's that sort of factual yes. detail. You're not going to get as you say, insights or reflections, it's, it's the factual no, information. You won't necessarily get great stories, but it's about weaving together mm. the facts you can see on the paper. I mean, my job is to weave information. Um, I have more colour than Ken Womack, the author of the book, has, but nonetheless, I'm sure he's going to do a good job. Mm. Um, Jeff Cement Mixer asks, uh, <laughs> possibly not his real name, um, apart from the <laughs> September uh, tape, uh, in your research, which discovery was the thing you felt was the biggest challenge to what people believed to be the true story. Oh, God. And I never like stories of what was the greatest <laughs> and what was the biggest and what was the most surprising. I suppose Ardmore and Beachwood well, we comes just, we to just that, get maybe. Rid of all of these questions. That would be a big one, how the Beatles came to get their, rec their record contract is a mm. big one, yeah. Um, another uh, may not mean so much to anybody else, but I was shocked to find... I was shocked to find that Pete Best took legal action against them almost immediately when he was fired because he's never said that. In all the interviews he's ever done, he's never said that he took action against them. Not at that time. 
Uh, and I was very surprised to find that Brian Epstein had didn't only manage the Beatles as a band, he also managed Lennon and McCartney as songwriters. And that was a separate contract for just the two of them as a songwriting partnership. And that meant that they, there was this twin track thing going on. It was Lennon and McCartney writing for the Beatles and also Lennon and McCartney writing songs or giving away surplus songs to other artists. And quite a few of those became big hits as well. And that was the subject to another agreement. No one had ever mentioned that. And I just found the contract in a box and it's like, Oh my God, there was a contract for that as well. One of the joys of my job is I never know what the next piece of paper is going to tell me. And I have some amazing things of volume two that I'm not going to tell you about. <laughs> I, I, I won't even mention that I've got them. <laughs> um, uh, Soapy asks, if someone tells you that the Beatles are overrated, how do you reply? I would say they're underrated. Yeah, that's the correct answer. That's I correct. would say for everything we know and love about the Beatles, there's more. Um, they changed everything and they did it in the most brilliant way and they were incredibly funny and engaging and charismatic and their music, it was great then and during the 60s people began to recognise that these songs had some other shelf life when other artists, serious artists so-called, began, began to cover their songs but who knew, well, obviously nobody, that 50 to 60 years on, the music would still sound fresh. I don't know how they did that, even though I know a lot about how they wrote the songs and how they recorded them. Um, we've never had better opportunity than today to examine the process. There's still something magical about the combination of all of their, their original, their instinctive creativity that has made those songs sound fresh still. Mm. and inspiring still. So I think they're underrated. Okay. Mm. Um, I didn't submit this one. Susan wrote, writes, Paul or George? <laughs> <laughs> it's the unanswerable question. <laughs> it's the unanswerable question. Uh, moving, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> I don't know. You wouldn't well, I, I think, um, yeah, th there was a question that we, we talked about. Just I'm fine for time, by the way. You can go on forever. Okay. So Excellent. Got to finish that point. Well, these, these podcasts do tend to run, run on a bit. Um, it, coming out of the, the, the you're saying about the, 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 you know, they're underrated and it's the music, but it's also the personalities. And someone said to me, you know, it may not be the greatest story ever told, but it has the best soundtrack. Yes. But it is the personalities and we're, we're sort of, Thankfully, we are obsessed with their personal lives, their relationship, and increasingly, you know, there's a finite amount of music, but the relationship between those four individuals is endlessly fascinating. Yeah. And, and that's where I think, you know, each new fact that you turn up and each, it, it's the light that it sheds on that relationship. And you don't, I think, get that with any other no band. Way. And, and that's, I suppose, the question for me is we, we can look at the music and we can listen to the music. Why are we so endlessly fascinated by the interactions between those four men? This, I, it's an extraordinary thing. It's, it's very hard to answer that one. It's, it's, it comes down to chemistry. And it was fascinating for me to find out that before the Beatles were famous, when they were only local lads still in the phone book in Liverpool and you could phone them up at home and say, can you sing... 
you know, three cool cats at the cavern tomorrow night and all of that. The, the fans they had then, very small in number, but very dedicated, had the same fascination for them that we have still. They had it then, whatever that thing was that they have, they had it then, they've always had it. Um, a lot of the research I do is not about the music, it's about their lives, it's about their business, it's about their, their interactions, it's about their home lives, whatever it might be, it's always interesting. Yeah. It's never boring, it's never dull, it's always engaging, it's always, wow, that's an interesting thing. All the people in the Beatles story, they all have interesting stories as well. The man who made their suits jumped off a train, taking him to a concentration camp. You know, that one example, George Martin's story is fantastic. Mm. Brian Epstein's story, Alan Klein's story, Derek Taylor, their press officer, Neil Aspinall, Mal Evans, all these people who work for them, their drivers, they're all interesting people with interesting stories. And um, they had the knack of attracting very bright, charismatic people to them who wanted to give of themselves. The first thing Brian Epstein does is basically say to them, I'll do anything for you. Uh, it doesn't quite put it in those words, but that's the effect of it. He's, he want, he'll do anything he can to make them as big as he thinks they deserve to be. George Martin is persuaded to sign them, but very soon after he's met them, he's thinking, I want to help these guys. Astrid Kircher, who takes their pictures in Germany in 1960, that they attracted such a woman to them. Okay, it's through Stuart, also a very interesting young man. But they were a magnet for people who wanted to give of their best to them. And I'm part of the same thing. You know, I, I want to devote my professional life, and it's kind of my whole life, really, to sharing the joy mm. of just how brilliant they were. And I don't know why they've possessed me in quite that way, but they have, and I'm very happy about it. Uh, it's interesting to hear you say that that, that is the, the group of fans in Liverpool felt mm. that, yeah. and then that somehow transferred to everybody else in the world, Yes, fell into that same sort of love affair with them and uh, with collectively. Yes. Um, I, I mean, at the heart of that relationship, I suppose it comes always comes back to John and Paul, to Lennon and McCartney, and the, the fact that they were so close and then so riven in, in 1970. And there are a lot of questions here about John and Paul. And one of them is, you know, when was the last time that they were together? We, we know the last photograph is sort of in, in LA, around the, the pool, Paul with his mustache. Did they keep in touch after that in by telephone? And, you know, we all want to know when, when was the last time that George spoke to John? When was the last time Paul? When was the last time Ringo? Yeah. What, when was the last? <clears throat> the interaction. Ringo had dinner with John in the Plaza Hotel. I think it was November 1980. Mm -hmm. John was writing songs for Ringo's next yeah. album. Um, not quite sure. What, something went on at that dinner. I'm not quite entirely sure what it was. I think possibly something to do with that. It might have been Ringo drinking. I'm not quite sure. But they were, they were, they were happy together, but mm. it, that evening wasn't a success, I don't think. But their relationship was rock solid. George and John, funnily enough, they had a very, very close bond in the 60s, but it dissipated post-74. Um, I think George saw John in about 78, and that was the last mm -hmm. time. I can't remember when Paul last saw John. I think it might have been about 78. It's in, it's in the next volume of 
Adrian Sinclair and Alan Cozin's book, because I've talked to them about it, their McCartney legacy book. Um, they've got all the dates of John's meetings with Paul. I, I'm a little less focused on the mm. late 70s than I am on the late 60s. Um, but John and Paul, their falling out was much more public than the others. In fact, the others, pub, the others falling out wasn't really public at all. It was no. really about John and Paul that are writing open letters to one another through newspapers in 1971. That was really the problem. That's why everyone thought that they had the biggest issues, and they, and they did. Um, but they also had other times that were good in the 70s. Mm. Um, in 71, in, in late 71, they had dinner. They saw each other on and off throughout then. There was a period when Paul couldn't go to America and John couldn't get out of America. So there was a break then. But in 74, Paul could get back to America and he saw John. And there's pictures of them together in 74, yeah. which are very good to see. Um, uh, no pictures after that, though. And how close do you think John came to going to New Orleans to, to record? Because uh, yeah. that's talked about, and I've read Tony Visconti's biography, and he said he's the one that sort of put John off that notion because he referred back to something Paul had done to him with the credits on Band on the Run, and John said, oh, you're absolutely right, I'm, I, I don't want to resurrect that. Yeah, the story is that in February 75, Paul was going to record in New Orleans for what became Venus and Mars, the Wings album, and... Paul was always keen to work with John again. John was hot and cold on it, but there was a moment when they were both hot at the same time. And it was February 75 and Paul, John was going to go. I'm not sure about, I know Visconti was pissed off with Paul. Mm. I'm not sure whether he actually put John off going down to New Orleans, but I think probably Yoko did. Right. Because John had forsworn the idea of working with Paul ever again so many times that I think she reminded him that he had said so many times he was never going to do it. Do you really want to do it? Do you really, really want to do it? Because you've said you don't. And I think that made him think. She might also have found out she was pregnant around that time as well, actually. February 75. Um, yeah, that's really? an old, yeah, yeah. She was, um, John wrote, it's a date that does stick in my mind. Why do I know this? John Lennon <laughs> wrote that, you know, that Sean was conceived on February the 6th. <laughs> so he had his hands full. I wasn't there at the time. <laughs> um, but John and Yoko weren't together much at all before February. Mm. And it was February when Paul was working in New Orleans. It was the Mardi Gras time. So I don't know that she could have found out she was pregnant quite so quickly. Mm. Is my answer to that. Okay, that's good. A medical that's, question. That, that's, that's very detailed information. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I think that I think Tony King has said Tony King, who's got a new book out, um, who was working for John. I think he said that Yoko found out she was pregnant the day John did the old grey whistle test interview with Bob Harris, oh. and I think that was I can't remember the date of that. It was April eighteen broadcast, but transmission. I mean, um, recording. I think maybe March, mm. maybe March. Have you, have, you read, have you read the Sony King book? Have you no. seen? Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I think that will be a fascinating book if it lives up to, yes. you know, I mean, he was so central yes. um, that uh, if he can transcribe that, translate that onto the page, I think that'll be a fascinating I'm book. I'm hoping it's going to be very good, yes. And have you seen the book that Paul is just about 
to put out that he's just announced. No, I didn't know about it until the announcement went out yesterday. I'm very excited about that. Is that an archive that that was known about? It, 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 I had never heard this. This is just for people that don't know that there's a, a book of photographs that Paul took. Um, so he's not in the photographs, but these are photographs he took when the Beatles were on tour in the mid-60s. And uh, there's an exhibition at the National Gallery, I think, in Portrait Gallery in London. Yes. And a book coming out, 60 pounds to, mm. to you. It's a high price. <laughs> Two, 200 odd photographs. They all, I mean, the Beatles, they were so close. They often, they shared hobbies and they all had the hobby of photography in 1964. They all had um, Pentax cameras. In fact, I've got the correspondence that gave them the cameras in my files. Um, but so for that year, they all went around taking pictures of one another and what the circumstances they were in. Some of George's pictures are in um, the Living in the Material World book. Some of Ringo's pictures were published at the time, actually, to give him a little bit of a, uh, some money on the side. Um, and now Paul's books, Paul's pictures are coming out and they're going to be 200 odd pictures we've never seen before yeah. mm. from the ins inside looking out, which is the opposite of what we usually get. So I'm very excited to think because you can learn something from every photograph. Yeah. So I'm very happy to think that I'm going to get a lot of new insight from these pictures. I, I was very much excited in uh, Peter Jackson's Get Back when Ringo had a video camera a 1969 yeah. video camera. Yes. And I was wondering, oh man, I'd love to see what Ringo was filming on his 1969 video. Yeah. Camera. In fact, Peter Jackson has <laughs> talked about doing a project for the Beatles at the moment and he won't tell us what it is. Uh, and I'm hoping that he will do something or someone will do something, it needn't be him, with all their home movies because they had a collective hobby in late 63 of filming everything. Yeah. And a little bit of that is in the anthology. Then there's a lovely little bit in Get Back when you see them in Rishikesh in India. Um, I'm hoping that more is done with their home movie footage. N not all of which exists anymore, but some of it does. I'm, I'm hoping for Rishikesh. I, I'm hoping that that's what Jackson is working on because I think that... Oh, I mean, they talk about in Get Back, we hear Paul talking about, you know, the films that we've got and, you know, what they could call it and everything. Well, yeah. why not make it? Well, I wondered, was that a sort of a teaser, a sort of little Easter egg well, built into the mm. film that he was, he was, yeah. uh, I'm overthinking this. They'll have to. Uh... The, what, what, what we're getting now, which we've never had before, is we're getting the Beatles tumbling their own archives onto the table. In, in years gone by, they always kept things. When I was working on the anthology, I said to George Martin, um, they've all got stuff at home. Mm. Um, you're the only one who can actually say to them, boys, um, you know, what do you have at home? And um, it was quite a political project. It was like, who's giving what? And I'm not going to give any more than he's given. And he won't give, so I won't give and that kind of thing. It was still a good project, but there was all that going on as well. What they now seem to be doing is saying, I found this. Mm. Um, and I'm all for it. I mean, I want to see all their archives. I, I, I long to see everything that they've got. I really do. Yeah, the Yellow Submarine demos were quite special on the revolver box. Yeah. What an extraordinary thing that is. Who knew that existed, yeah. that, that demo of John drafting what became Yellow Submarine? You mentioned anthology there, and we just might wrap up on one or two anthology questions, because you were intimately involved in anthology. I'm assuming you don't know if there's any status of anthology, because that feels like something that needs a high-def 4K Dolby Atmos reconstitution <laughs> kind of job. 
I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, it was done to the highest technology available in the 90s. So it, will, it, would, it would be robust enough to have a good treatment on it. But I, I don't know. I don't know. That way of making a documentary is slightly dated now, perhaps. But mm. I, what I loved about it was that they gave it so much time. And um, it was ultimately on DVD. It was eight parts. Yeah. And um, I was very pleased with the length that they gave it because you could really get into things then. And we did some episodes on Anthology and I think when we tease it out, uh, I was kind of surprised at how chaotic it kind of went in 96, certainly getting the CDs out and all the rest and certain last minute changes and, uh, you know, to track listings and so on and so forth. Uh, was that the case at the time that, uh, you know, once the, the TV show, had kind of, that was kind of the main focus of attraction that the book gets delayed a few years and it, it doesn't it, 96 is not as organized as 95 in a way it was all geared towards the tv broadcasts which in the uk were itv and uh, in america were abc and the uh, beatles anthology one album and the unveiling of free as a bird were timed to coincide with that but then there were no more tv programs around to promote albums two and three so they they had a little less pizzazz about them and there was, if you could look at a graph of the A, the excitement, and B, the sales, it kind of went down without the product on TV to support it. Um, the will was there to get it right and to do it and to see it through, but it was a fairly political. I mean, it's not really often discussed. I don't, it, it's interesting. I talked briefly about how in 1971, John and Paul had an open fight in the press, writing letters to one another that were published in newspapers. That continued, not exactly that, but opinions from one about another continued to be expressed right through the rest of the decade, right through the 80s, until around, I would say, the anthology time when there must have been an agreement between them that they're going to keep it all in-house from now on. They're not going to argue publicly anymore. If they have disagreements, they'll keep it under wraps. So we have none of that anymore. Mm. But that doesn't mean it isn't going on. And I think it is very political on the inside of Apple. And Neil Aspinall told me a lot about all of that and how political it was. It was one of the reasons he couldn't stand the job anymore. Um, and just because we don't know about it doesn't mean it isn't happening. But it hasn't prevented great things being done by Apple. And I'm very happy with all the archive projects that they've done in recent years. I think they've handled them professionally and with care. And we couldn't wish for any more than that. We can wish for more product there. <laughs> yes. uh, and can I ask you just, if you don't mind me asking, your your relationship with Apple? Because you talked a little bit about this whenever you were on the podcast in 2019, yeah. And with MPL, and I I think the McCartney One Two Three project. Uh, did we see your name come up in the credits? Yes, yes, I, I'm credited on that, and I'm credited on the first of the Get Back things as well, mm -hmm. um, which I was quite surprised about and pleased as well. Um, I didn't do much for either. I spoke to Rick Rubin. He called me and he wanted some advice about tapes he should be requesting from Abbey Road. Right. Uh, and, and not just Beatles, but um, Paul's solo stuff, which aren't at Abbey Road. But, um, but what tapes can I get out that are going to be the most revealing about Paul's process? And I advised him on that. Uh, and that was all I did. I'm not, so to answer the bigger question, I'm actually, I have no relationship anymore at all. Uh, I'm doing this book and um, 
it's it's independent of, mm -hmm. of i mean I, I was always intent on it being independent of them i didn't want there to be no relationship but that's the way it's gone yeah. and that's that's that hmm. Okay, I, th I think we've asked an awful lot of questions. We have, thank you very I'm much. Sorry for if your... we didn't get to your question out in the audience, folks. But thank you for your time. <laughs> but thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Lewison. Thank you. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.